Well, good morning, Tabernacle. I appreciate the fact that you're worshiping with us this weekend, especially our friends uh, in Manistee. I got the privilege to be in Manistee on Friday. The office was kind of quiet, but uh, it, it was just amazing to walk through and remember um, because if you haven't been there, that place is a miracle. And not just because of the building, but because of the people and the lives uh, that have been changed and are changing there. Um, and the same thing for us. So I'm excited uh, about what God has in this next season for us. Uh, good guys and bad guys is where I want to start today. Good guys and bad guys. If you ever watched a movie, if you ever read a book, I don't know if you paid attention to this, but one of the first things you try to do is figure out, wait, who am I for? Who are the good guys in this show and who are the bad guys? And I got to be honest, in this day and age, more and more, uh, they, they present more and more complex characters. I miss the good old days when you could watch a Western and you knew who the good guys were because they were whoever was with Matt Dillon. Ah, uh, you remember. Saturday night looked at me like, who's he? Come on, man. Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke, right? He was always the good guy, and he was always perfectly good. And if you weren't with Matt Dillon, you were the bad guys, and you were going to go down. But sometimes it's not always that clear. When we go to uh, sports, high school athletics, I've noticed one thing is we might worship together, we might work together, we might even have friends in other towns, but when it's their kids in that town, at that school, against our kids from our town and our school, well, we're the good guys, and we know who the bad guys are, right? Depending on your choice of color, whether you're maize and blue, sorry, or green, you choose good guys and bad guys, right? And the jokes have been flying uh, this morning at the Buckley campus, uh, mostly from uh, the losers. But either way, either way, hey, I'm not, I don't have a team there. I'm, I'm with God's team. You know how that goes. Notre Dame. <laughs> Name for Jesus' mom. Of course, they're the good guys, right? But good guys and bad guys. And the reason that I want to start there is sometimes we can get confused when we come to the Bible because we love to take... Old Testament figures and puff them up. And maybe it's because uh, you, you had a children's ministry experience like I did. When I was a kid, it was like, you can be really, uh, you know, if you work hard and have faith, you'll be just like David. I'm pretty sure my wife doesn't want me to be just like David, right? I mean, if we really dig, well, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Just this past week, uh, I had a meeting here at church and afterwards had a few minutes and I'm walking out. And uh, here in Buckley, I noticed there were a lot of cars in the parking lot. And I couldn't remember why. Why are they there? I know I should know. I should have the whole calendar by heart. But I just decided I have a key. I'll peek in. So I came in here to T2 in the auditorium. You, you, you can't see it, Manistee, but they were all right in here. And there was all these tables, and there was a women's Bible study. Tab women were meeting. And it just made me happy. I was like, oh, this is cool. And I just kind of peeked in through the back door. One of the tables saw me. He's like, oh, you, come here. And I was like, oh, no. I don't know if I'm supposed to be at women's Bible study without my wife. This is weird. <laughs> but I got roped in, and they had some awesome questions. And they didn't ask in so many words, but it all revolved around the subject. They were studying God's word, and, and some of Solomon's life had come up. And, and the question was, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? 
Are we going to see Solomon in heaven? And so with Solomon or with David or with all these guys, are they, are they good guys or bad guys? Or, or us, me, John, you, members of the congregation, are we good guys or bad guys? The answer is yes, if we're honest, if we're honest. So if you have a Bible, uh, hopefully this will make sense for us. We're in 1 Kings chapter 3, the next part of the story. And we're going to look at just the first 15 verses. And it recounts a little summary of where King Solomon and his kingdom went next. The kingdom has been secured. And so it gives a little summary at the beginning. And there's some clues in there on the whole good guys, bad guys thing. But then there's the most famous incident of Solomon's life this encounter with God. So with no further ado, we'll read from God's word, uh, starting in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1. It said, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is God's word. 
And one of the most profound statements is right in chapter three. In fact, it's a phrase, and it's said of no other Old Testament figure. Those words when it said Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord. That would look great on a tombstone. I mean, what more could you say about a person? Solomon loved the Lord. Now, I'm sure David loved the Lord. David was a man after God's own heart. We can see in the Psalms David's love for the Lord, but it doesn't say that about David. It doesn't say that about Moses or anyone else for that matter. Is Solomon a good guy or a bad guy? Well, Solomon loved the Lord, and isn't it about loving God and loving people? Yes. And the Lord loved Solomon. Remember the, 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 the fact that when he was born, it says from the time of his birth, the Lord loved Solomon. He chose him out of all the brothers. He wasn't even the oldest. He wasn't even the best or necessarily the brightest. He was one of David's children from a multitude of wives, but the Lord loved Solomon. And the Lord appeared to Solomon, not once, but twice. This is a big deal. But we see just in the first few verses that yes, Solomon loved the Lord, but Solomon is complicated. And if we're honest, we're complicated, right? So let's unpack that, just a couple of things of what it summarizes as far as his reign. The first thing it says is that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Egypt. Politically, he made an alliance with Egypt. Now, that may not seem like a big deal unless you're paying attention to the story and the message of the Old Testament. Out of all the nations that you could make an alliance with, out of all the people that you come to an economic and military agreement, we won't fight you, you don't fight us, let's have peace, let's not squabble about borders or anything else. Why Egypt? How many times in the Old Testament do we hear things like, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Egypt was a place of bondage. Egypt was a place of slavery. Egypt worshiped false gods and idols. They'd been in bondage there for 400 years, the people of Israel. God had to send Moses to Egypt you know, the whole plagues thing, the parting of the Red Sea, the 40 years in the wilderness to bring them out of this place. And the first thing Solomon does is he makes an alliance with those people. So I see some scholars saying this was just like treason. How could you? But then I've read some other scholars that say, isn't this a beautiful story of redemption? These were slaves that God redeemed out of Egypt and now he's blessed this kingdom, first under Saul and then under David. And now what we'll see in 1 Kings is that the kingdom of Israel will never be greater. There'll never be another kingdom like it was under Solomon. The highest heights, glory, and honor you can imagine. So he's taken these slave people and brought them up to the level of the most powerful nation on earth, so much so that they would agree and seek an alliance with him. And so some scholars are like, this is not a bad thing. This is God flexing his muscles. Remember you used to be slaves? Now they want to be your allies. It's complicated. And aren't politics today complicated? I thought about going on, on a rant here, but I've done that enough. If we're honest, politics 
are complicated. I get my guy and he's a good guy and your guy is a bad guy. And I look past all the bad things about my good guy and all I do is accentuate all the things about your good guy because he's really a bad guy. I'm getting confused with all the guys. But politics are complicated. Well, it's the same thing here. Then we go to his marriage. The alliance was based on a marriage and that was not uncommon in that day and age. Kings and queens have made alliances for years based on a marriage. How do, how do you make sure that your, you know, your enemy doesn't fight a war? You marry off your daughter to him. And so he married Pharaoh's daughter. You know, and again, I start diving into commentaries and it's like, well, this was a violation of God's law. Because does it not say in Deuteronomy, did God not say when you come into the land, the land that I'm going to give you, do not intermarry with all the surrounding nations, the nations of Canaan, the Canaanite women, because these women will lead your men's hearts astray to the worship of idols. Don't do it. And it's not just for them. It's also for kings. Don't do it. And here we have Solomon not only making an alliance with Egypt, he's married an Egyptian, the daughter of the Pharaoh. He's Pharaoh's son-in-law. How could he? But then you get another scholar that says, well, we don't know if she worshiped foreign gods. Maybe she married Solomon and, and became a worshiper of Yahweh. And by the way, it said, don't marry Canaanites. It said nothing about Egyptians. Marriage is complicated, isn't it? The men don't dare even giggle at that, do they? I mean, and there's a principle here, and it's a good principle. This carries over into the New Testament. This is why no matter how good-looking he is or how good-looking she is, no matter what his job or her job, no matter how much potential is in him or her, but I love him, but I love her. If you don't worship the same God, there's going to be pain for you. It's called being unequally yoked. We highly discourage it. You won't fix him. This isn't a marriage conference, but marriage is complicated. So was it good or bad? Well, we'll see consequences of Solomon's actions. It mentions in there that the people were worshiping at the high places. We'll deal with that in just a moment because the temple had not yet been built. One of the things, and this is a preview, it's not a spoiler, but Solomon spends a lot of time building things. In fact, if you go to 1st and 2nd Samuel, where we were in years past, there's a lot of wars and there's fights, and it's like, you know, most men are like, oh, this is awesome. Every Sunday's like a, it's like a war movie, right? And, and, and the thing with 1st Kings, it's a lot of building projects. Well, that's boring. Well, it depends on if you prefer war to peace. And Solomon during his reign, the kingdom is at peace and the kingdom is established and the kingdom is honored. And so there's all these building projects. But what was loaded in there is that Solomon spent 13 years building his house, which sounds like a lot of, like Northern Michigan in 2023 because you can't find contractors. <laughs> and, you know, the whole thing with the code and the permits and all that, you know, you're not, okay, yeah. Um, but he took 13 years to build his house. Do you know how long it took to build God's house? Seven. Well, that, where's your priority? Well, I don't know. Maybe his house had more people that needed to be in it. And maybe he was in a rush to get the, it's complicated. Alliances are complicated. Marriage is complicated. Building projects are very complicated. 
And then we get to this matter of the high places. Now, I'm not trying to just give you a bunch of trivia. I'm trying to present the complexity of the situation. Israel was told not to worship at the high places like the pagans do. What are the high places? They're hills, they're mountaintops, they're places that maybe have a, a great view and kind of feel spiritual, kind of like Asheville, North Carolina, very, oh. And so people trying to get near to God would go, I'm gonna go have a worship session there at a high place because somehow that'll bring me closer to God. And they were like, no, don't do that. We worship God in the way that he desires, not in the way we desire. No do-it-yourself religion. We can relate to that. We're surrounded by people that are like, I believe in God, but I don't need people. I don't need church. I don't need anyone to tell me anything. I have my own little do-it-yourself religion. And that's false. It might come out of a good heart. I don't know who's saved and who's not saved, but it says the people, because there was no temple, were offering sacrifices to the one true God, but they were doing it at the high places. And one of them was Solomon. So that sounds really, really bad. Solomon, you're the God's anointed chosen king. You're a shadow of the Christ, the king and the kingdom to come and you're worshiping at the high place? Not good. He offered a thousand sacrifices there because he loved the Lord, which by the way, can't resist. Thousand sacrifices, that's a big gift. Well done. But it was at a high place. And that's also where God chose to appear to him. God's never appeared to me. Has he appeared to you? It says, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And so is Solomon a good guy? Is Solomon a bad guy? Lord appears to him, this Lord that he loves and who loves him back, and he says, ask what you will of me. And because what he asked so pleased God, God gave him what he asked and gave him even what he didn't ask for. Wisdom, wisdom. And so in the time remaining, I wanna just share three observations as I'm trying to say, okay, how is this a shadow of King Jesus? How is this a shadow of the gospel, of the King of Kings, of the new covenant of the gospel? And, and, and here's the first one. Here's the first one, is that there's a doctrine from the Reformation that was developed by Martin Luther and the other reformers. This is the guy who nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and began this explosion of the personal relationship with God rather than trying somehow to be constrained by religious activity. And that's this, is that because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of the cross, because the King of Kings was offered by God his Father as a sacrifice for all of my sins and your sins and Solomon's sins, the sins of the past, the sins of the present, and the sins of the future, and that it's only through Christ that you can be saved, not in and of yourself. This doctrine is that we're simultaneously justified and sinner. We're simultaneously justified and sinner. Now, you can have a bad reaction to that. There's some people that will go, like I used to do, well, I'm no sinner, until I realized that I'd already lost the game even by saying that. But this is the gospel, that I can be in position a child of God, made righteous because of Jesus, but I'm also in a body made of flesh, and I'm still in process. 
I'm simultaneously justified in sinner. I'm not good at the Latin, but I'll try it. Essentially, it's simul justus e peccator, a big doctrine of the Reformation. And it's because the Bible says the just shall live by faith. Translation, the just are only saved by faith. And that's true for Solomon, and that's true for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And it goes on to talk about that this glorious salvation that only comes by God's grace through faith prepares us to do good works. So I don't do good works in order to be saved. I do good works because I'm saved. I'm already saved, now I want to do good works. So it's a want to rather than a have to. I know I'm going fast, but it's something that we've kind of covered here ad nauseum. And so if Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is true, this supports how I can be simultaneously justified and a sinner. So Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of our identity in Christ. That if, if I have faith in God and I have faith in his son Jesus Christ to forgive of my sins, that means I'm forgiven, I'm adopted, I'm loved, his grace is lavished upon me, I have been made a part of the royal family, I'm gifted, I have a future, an inheritance that is sealed, I'm given the spirit, all of this is my identity in Christ. So that's why we say simultaneously justified. So God looks at me, a fallen, imperfect man, and he sees righteousness. But if you ask my wife, if you ask my kids, I ain't nowhere near perfect. Simultaneously justified and sinner. How are we saved then? By faith. And the question that the ladies were kind of driving at, well, is Solomon saved? Well, if he had faith, yes. But he was also complicated. Hebrews chapter 11 says that the ancients in the Old Testament, it was their faith for which they were commended. Those that had faith in God, despite their imperfections, Otherwise, David would have already been kicked to the curb, right? Murderer, liar, adulterer, a little bit vindictive, not a very good dad. Well, in the, in the narrative of good guys and bad guys, I think that's enough to make you a bad guy. And what I'm not presenting here is, well, does my good outweigh my bad? No, that's why I'll forever be saying things that are jarring, like there's only two kinds of people in this world. There's only two kinds of people in Manistee, here in Buckley, in Cadillac, across the world. There's only two kinds of people. They're wicked people, and then there's Jesus. And the sooner we come to understand that, that drives us to faith in Jesus. Because then I can say, yes, I'm a sinner and I deserve nothing, but I'm hiding behind Jesus. I'm hiding behind his righteousness. And what Jesus did for us on the cross is if I receive him by faith, his righteousness is now given to me. And all of my bad works and all of my complicatedness was put on him. That's why he died. That's the gospel, friends. In position, I'm justified. Sometimes in my actions, not so much. And one more thing before we move to the second observation. This is not permission to live however we want. You can be justified, but if you choose to say, well, good, I wish this service would get over because I got some sinning to do. (laughs) I'm not sure you're saved. And secondly, 
you can be positionally justified and you will still face a heavy price for sin. God will let us reap the consequences of our sin. We spoke last week about that verse in Galatians that says, God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. If we sow to unrighteousness, we will reap unrighteousness. We'll reap judgment. And he's gonna love Solomon and Solomon's gonna love him back. And Solomon's gonna get a lot of it right, but Solomon is also gonna lay the groundwork for the absolute destruction of Israel. Because it's not just one wife he's gonna take. He'll take 300. 300, most of them foreign. There's a, there's a passage right around uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, but Solomon loved many foreign women. And so what began as just the daughter of Pharaoh resulted in a whole plethora of women, a 300 wives, 700 concubines, and they led his heart, instead of to be one heart towards God, a divided heart, and he'll reap the consequences. So that was the first one, is that by faith, we're simultaneously justified, and while we're in these bodies, we might still sin. Let's not mistake God's blessing and his patience for his approval of our actions. You can be blessed by God and think you're getting away with it. That's not his approval. What you think is, well, you know, I've been kind of going this way and, you know, I love God, but having a divided heart, choosing not to deal with that sin, you, you can go for a while. Don't mistake his patience with you for his approval of your actions. So here's the second thing. And it, it's born out of his request, and that's this, that a listening heart pleases God. A listening heart pleases God. If you're one of those note takers, that's, that's one to remember, that a listening heart is pleasing to God. When I see something in scripture that someone has pleased God by an action or, or a certain attitude of their heart, I think it's good to take note because I want to please God. I want to bring glory to God. I love God. John loved God. And I know that God loves John, but I want to please him. And so it, it says here that when Solomon asked or was asked, ask what I shall give you. Now, we got to pause right there because this is like the, you know, did God grant Solomon one wish? And there's a reason God didn't appear to me and give me one wish because I know what I would answer, right? If anyone asks you ever, if you had one wish, what's the wish supposed to be? I'd like three wishes. <laughs> My first wish is three wishes. And then you use two and you get down to one. You never played that game? Well, you don't believe in genies then, do you? <laughs> he, has, he says, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon delivers this beautiful prayer. It's full of honor. It's full of gratitude. He starts speaking about the steadfast love you've shown to David and the steadfast love you've shown to me and you've given me this throne. There's great humility in his request. He goes, I'm but a little child. He says, I don't know how to go out or come in. That's in reference to, I don't know how to make war. And they, here's this, your, your, your great people, that's a multitude, too many to count, and so his request is, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? An understanding mind. Some translations uh, put that, give me a discerning heart. 
Now, growing up, what I always heard, it was simplified. Well, Solomon said, give me wisdom. In fact, I read a translation, give me wisdom. And, and, and this discerning mind or this understanding mind, this discerning heart, all of this is kind of like under the junk drawer. Sorry, this is me pulling a junk drawer. So there's a junk drawer and it's the wisdom drawer. They're all like definitions trying to say the same thing because the Hebrews didn't delineate between the soul, heart, and mind. It was all one. It was the center core of your being. But what I always heard is, oh, he just asked for wisdom. Well, there's a lot of wisdom in this room. Some of you have unbelievable wisdom when it comes to cars. When I hear a knocking or a banging, you know, I got friends within this church that I'll text. It was a plip plop kating sound, right? Because I don't know. I don't have that kind of wisdom. And they're like, well, it's the accentuator on your defibrillator straps, you know, in the rear shackle shingle. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. That's what I thought, right? I don't know. I don't know. And some of you have wisdom in other areas, financial wisdom, which I'm not good at either. I don't math. We all have like wisdom in different areas, but it's way more than wisdom that Solomon's asking for. In fact, in my study, what I found is this thing that the ESV calls an understanding mind. It's better translated in the Hebrew to this beautiful expression. He said, give me a listening heart. Give me a listening heart. So it begs the question, listen to who or listen to what? And the implication is Solomon was saying, because he gets it right in this moment, give me a listening heart to you, Lord, to your word, to your voice, to your wisdom, not mine. Whatever that is, that's something I want to cultivate because that pleased God. And he said, yes. Because he says, because you have asked this and have not asked for riches or honor, you know what? I'm going to give you a listening heart so that you can discern between good and evil so that you'll know how to go out and how to come in so that you'll have what you need to govern this, my people. I'll give you that listening heart. And because you didn't ask for all the other things, I'm going to give you those things too. I'm gonna give you power and glory and riches and honor. So for us, a direct application is a listening heart. A listening heart pleases God. And it's to listen to his word, his voice, his wisdom. Jesus said something very similar in Luke chapter 11. He said, blessed is the one who hears and obeys the word of God. Blessed is the one who hears and obeys the voice of God. Friends, you can love the Lord and you can hear his word and you can hear his voice and still not obey it. Because I've spent a lot of time wondering if Solomon was so wise, how could he disregard the command about polygamy? If he was so wise, how could he decide that he was just going to go ahead and not marry one, but 300 unbelievers that would eventually lead his heart astray? If Solomon was so wise when we get to the building program, why would he use forced labor, conscription labor among the Israelites to build his palace in the temple when he was forbidden by God's law? And here's why. It's one thing to listen. It's another thing to heed. Wisdom is only useful if you use it. And 
before I throw stones at Solomon, I start thinking about all the times I've done the same thing. I know what's right and wrong, but I'm going to do what I want anyways. I may even have a listening heart to God's word, to his voice, to his wisdom. I may even go to a counselor. I may talk to my friends who've been following the Lord longer than I have. Hey, about the situation, what do you think? Well, I think this and this. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do my own thing. Because no one's ever known as much as I do. Because I'm so unique. I don't need the church. I don't need accountability. I don't need membership. I don't need fight club. I don't need, do I need to keep going? We hear the wisdom week after week after week. Not my wisdom, God's wisdom, myself included. Why do we do that? Well, maybe it's because we don't have a listening heart. <laughs> maybe it's just because we're complicated. We're complicated. Last observation. If we're to have this wisdom, where do we get it? Was this a one-off thing for Solomon? Oh, it must be nice. God appeared to him. He hasn't appeared to me. Then I started thinking about this word wisdom. We go over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and verse 24. And you know, we're forever saying things like there's no wasted words in scripture. And here's a profound statement, just part of a sentence. In 1 Corinthians 1.24, it says, Christ, that's Jesus, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. So if Christ is the wisdom of God, if it's embodied in him, if it's all wrapped up in him, God in flesh, Jesus Christ in his person, his personality, his character, his nature in the flesh who lives today, he is the wisdom of God. And so I think one of the reasons that this request pleased God is Solomon didn't even know what he was asking for was he was asking for Jesus. Because Jesus is going to be the very wisdom of God. Now, if you're wondering where I got that statement, I stole it right out of the verse. Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. How should we communicate this? Oh, let's just take it right out of the Bible and put it on a screen. You're welcome. Jesus is the wisdom of God. So if I'm going to have a listening heart, or if I'm going to ask God for a listening heart, Really, what I'm asking for is Jesus himself, the wisdom of God, because Jesus is the answer to the question. Jesus is the answer to the question of my guilt. You know, when we all get wrapped up and, oh, I'm not worthy, and you don't know my past, and you don't know what I've done, and you don't know my secrets, Jesus is the answer to that. The wisdom of God at just the right time came to be the sacrifice for all of our sins. His righteousness given to me, my sin laid on him. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the answer to the question of where do I find meaning? Where do I find purpose? It's not in stuff. It's not in pleasure. It's not through experiences. He is the embodiment of meaning. He gives my life meaning because he loves me. He loved me first. Now my job has meaning because now with everything in my life, I want to love him back. He's the wisdom of God. Jesus is the answer to how I make moral decisions. If I want to know, well, what's the wisest thing to do in this situation? Hey, pastor, why don't you tell me? We're going to tell you, why don't you look at Jesus? Because Jesus was the only man who's perfectly good. 
In fact, think about this. Jesus was perfect in all the situations that I wasn't perfect in, and therefore he makes all my imperfections right. He's the wisdom of God. He's my righteousness. Jesus is the wisdom of God given to me when I'm afraid. I'm afraid about tomorrow. I'm afraid about the world. What's going on in the Middle East? What's going on in Russia? What's going on with our government? What's going on with our future? What about our retirement? Jesus is the wisdom of God. And at his name, demons flee. And the wisdom of God is available to every single one of us. So God may not have appeared to you in a dream and said, ask whatever you wish, but you know what? You can have Jesus. You don't have to be smart about cars or construction or finances or essential oils. Homeopathic healing. You don't have to be wise about all all that. I mean, maybe you are. That's good. But you know what's wiser? Jesus. The smallest child can have the wisdom of God because the smallest child can ask for Jesus, can cultivate a listening heart. God, give me a listening heart to hear Jesus. Would you give me the wisdom of God? Would you give me Jesus? We need listening hearts, church. There's one last bit of scripture that came to mind in this idea that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. And that comes from a familiar passage in the book of James. I'm almost done. James chapter 1. And I've always read this in the context of not knowing what to do. Or I've always read this in the context of, of needing wisdom for my life. And so I'll just read it to you, James 1 chapter 5, or James chapter 1 verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Well, that's a nice little thing. That's a promise that if you ask God for wisdom, he'll give you wisdom. How does he do that? Because I'm still dumb when it comes to cars. And I'm still not wise in a lot of areas of my life. But how is this a promise? Well, let's replace, if if Jesus is the wisdom of God, let's replace Jesus with wisdom. If any of you lacks Jesus, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man's double-minded man. So we see the wisdom of God is Christ. And there's a promise that if we ask for that wisdom in the new covenant, he'll, he'll answer that request. If you ask for more Jesus, he'll give you more Jesus. If you don't know Jesus and you want Jesus, you want that wisdom, it's available. You have a new way to live. You have a new rabbi. You have a new teacher. You have a new example. You have a new model. And it's not a human being. It's God in flesh. Jesus, the very wisdom of God. But we need listening hearts. We need listening hearts because it's one thing to have the wisdom of God and it's another thing to use that wisdom. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads as we close. And my encouragement for all of us would be to ask God for a listening heart. I could use wisdom. I know you could. Maybe you don't know God. Maybe you don't 
have a relationship with Christ. Maybe that's something you've never done. There's a promise. The prophet said, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things and would not believe even if you were told. There's a promise. And for all of us in the book of James, just like Solomon, we can ask for the very wisdom of God for Christ in our lives, the wisdom by which to navigate. Would you ask him for a listening heart or maybe ask him for Jesus for the first time in your life? Now's the time. God, we thank you for your word. We praise you for your son. Forgive us for the times that our hearts don't listen to you, where you offer yourself, your voice, and we ignore it. God, I pray you would give us listening hearts. God, would you give me a listening heart to hear you clearly and to respond as God's people that you would save us from the consequences of our own actions and instead invite us into this glorious relationship with you where we don't have to be the hero, where there's only really one good guy and the only way that we can be good guys is because if we know the best guy and his name is Jesus Christ. So it's in his name that we ask and in his name that we pray. Amen.